following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn your Bible to Isaiah chapter 55, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. The acronym RSVP comes from a four-word French phrase that means request a reply. When we host an event, we normally invite friends and family and neighbors. But when God extends an invitation, he invites all comers the high and the low, the religious and the irreligious. In our text, we find a grand invitation from the Lord that requires a response. As we gather today and prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, let us consider God's invitation for all sinners. I read from Isaiah 55. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall, not call, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth." It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy, and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. 
Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord our God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, once again we would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This past summer, my sister sent out an electronic invitation to more than 100 of my parents' closest friends and family members, inviting them to a 50th wedding anniversary, which we celebrated just over a month ago, two days after Christmas, in Houston. And people could respond to that invitation by the mere click of a button, whether on their computer or on their phone. And most did respond, and many came, and truly it was a wonderful event. And of course, there were several that were not able to come, and of course, there's always those few who did not respond at all. At our wedding, almost 17 years ago, back when we did not send out invitations electronically, but on paper, through snail mail, my in-laws were a bit upset at the reception when they discovered that many of their relatives who had responded, indicating that they were going to come, never showed up. And of course, when you got 10 or more couples not coming at $10 or more a plate, that's a lot of money that adds up and disappointment in their response. People's responses to invitations are oftentimes contingent upon how well they know you. Well, who's going to be there at this event? The perceived value of what's happening. Do they owe you? Did you come to their last event? In a world of ever-increasing opportunities, people have a tendency to wait until the last minute to respond, perhaps to see if something better will come along. In our passage, we have the greatest invitation ever offered, given by the most reliable host who has guaranteed a place at his table a feast for all those who respond in faith. However, accepting this invitation does come with a cost. It requires our accepting some unpleasant truths about ourselves. You see, this invitation implies things about us that we don't like to hear. Are you willing to listen? Are you able to embrace God's view of you? And will you respond to this invitation that promises life transformation and life eternal? Our passage can be divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 5, focusing on a certain pair of invitees, followed by verses 6 through 11 that focus on a distinct set of of invitees, and then afterwards a a vision and challenge for God's people. In verse 1, God invites the destitute. Three times he says to those who are thirsty, come, come to the waters, you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. 
And notice the Lord doesn't just offer basic sustenance. He says, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Sounds like a government program. Sounds too good to be true. You know, when my family needs milk, which is just about every other day, I just merely stop in at the Turkey Hill, pick up a few gallons, and I take them home. The Lord is reaching people who have no money. They're desperate. They are truly needy. These are people who fight dehydration on a regular basis, living in a semi-arid climate where water is scarce, where milk and wine were luxuries. The destitute are merely surviving. The image here is almost like that of a street vendor selling his wares and inviting customers But in this scene, rather than lash out at beggars, he welcomes them to come and purchase with dignity. The destitute have credit with the Lord, who covers their cost. Well, not only does the Lord invite the destitute, he also here invites the disillusioned. In verse 2, the Lord asks inquisitively, to those who have money, why do you spend it on that which is not bread, on labor that does not satisfy. We live in a prosperous land that does not have a food shortage problem. Rather, we have an obesity problem. We have an epidemic of diabetes. But our obsessions are not limited to food. They involve drink and all manner of substances, One man in our church has a brother-in-law who has been told by his doctors that he must lose more than 100 pounds before the doctors can proceed with a procedure to correct a heart problem. People spend their money on their desires. Houses, cars, experiences, sex, entertainment. All these things that promise life. People spend and spend and yet are never full. The Lord invites those disillusioned with the stuff of this materialistic age to stop seeking life in that which will not and cannot satisfy. Verse 3, he offers another command. Listen diligently to me. It literally says, hear, hear, like a parent getting the attention of a wayward child. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Many people think that God is against desire. He's the cosmic killjoy in the sky looking to zap anyone having fun or enjoying themselves. But no, we have a God of joy. We have a God who delights in pleasure, who offers everlasting happiness. And he wants you to have it, but not in the stuff of this world. Verse 3 goes on and says, Incline your ear to me. Come to me. Do you hear that? In verse 1, he says, come to the waters. But here in verse 3, he clarifies, no, come to me. When Peter, James, and John were on the mountain observing the glorious splendor of Jesus' transfiguration, they heard the divine voice from heaven say, listen to him. 
Jesus says, recorded in John 7, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In The Silver Chair, a book part of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series, a little girl named Jill Pole was pulled out of our world and into the magical world of Narnia. She's up on a high mountain in a forest and finds herself desperately thirsty. She sees a stream, and lying beside it is a great lion, C.S. Lewis's Aslan figure, or Christ figure, Aslan. The lion notices the girl and invites her to drink. But she is afraid, and so she asks the lion if he would move away. The lion says nothing, but utters a low growl. She then asks the lion if he would promise not to hurt her. The lion refuses to give such a promise. Now, even more desperate, Jill takes a step closer and asks him, Do you eat girls? The lion responds, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. I daren't come to drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Jill, terrified yet compelled, stepped closer. Oh dear, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream said the lion. Are you desperate and destitute enough to come and drink at the only stream that gives life? Are you disillusioned enough with the empty promises of this world and all the things that money can buy but fail to satisfy? If so, this invitation is for you but on one condition. You must come empty-handed. You must come not offering payment because it is worthless. It cannot purchase your way. It cannot reciprocate what the Lord has offered. You must accept the Lord's table on his credit. Earn to the perfect work, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verses 3 through 5 of our text go on to point us to Jesus Christ. As the Lord here promises to make an everlasting covenant to all who respond to this invitation... He based his creditworthiness on his steadfast love demonstrated to King David and to King David's true son who would come in his lineage. Jesus is the witness in verse 4, the leader and commander of God's people. He is the one who calls the nations to himself, the one to whom the nations run to for refuge. He is the Holy One of Israel, verse 5, the one who glorified his father when he was lifted up on a Roman cross to pay the sinner's debt and open up the gateway to paradise for all who believe. What will you do with this invitation? Does it offend you? Does it provoke you to tear it up? 
Do you merely yawn at it and toss it into the trash? Or perhaps you might put it on the shelf, wait to RSVP, wait for something better to come along, like I did in the eighth grade, before journeying on a three-year adventure of sin and misery, before the Lord called me out of the far country to be reconciled to my Father in heaven. This is a no-regrets invitation. It's not, it's not a regrets-only invitation. This is an invitation that requires a response in the affirmative, lest we face eternal consequences. Let's proceed to the second part of this passage, where we find another peculiar pair that the Lord invites to his table, both the wicked and the wise. In verse 6, we have another imperative. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This is a clear call to repentance. When I play hide-and-seek with my children, sometimes I'll make it easier for the younger to find me if I'm in a good mood. The Lord wants to be found. And like a joyful parent... He takes the toddler and swings him up over his head when he finds his hiding place. But the Lord offers a warning here. The opportunity for repentance does not last forever. The time approaches when the gate will be shut and the unrepentant will be locked out forever. This warning beckons the wicked to forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Every religion in the world teaches that you must do some good thing to find the way of salvation. That is not the gospel. Biblical Christianity teaches that we must humbly confess our inability to do good, our inability to earn our way to the table. We must confess our sin, our sinful hearts, and trust in the perfect, finished work of Christ alone to be saved. The passage says, compelling the wicked to return to the Lord that he may have compassion on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon the highest, only the highest executive has the power to pardon. And the Lord is a just judge who will punish sinners but he is also the compassionate God who pardons the guilty who repent. The religious leaders of Jesus' day would oftentimes spar with him when he would show compassion upon the sinners and the outcasts. Jesus would spend time with tax collectors and prostitutes and other untouchables. The scribes and the Pharisees were furious with Jesus. When after healing a paralytic man tells him, your sins are forgiven. That's not right, Jesus. That's not the way the game is played. These people need to get their act together and straighten up and follow the rules and come to our synagogues. Jesus didn't disagree with these things, but insisted that these people needed something first. Him. 
These people needed him before rules and correction in their lives could do them any good. So I believe that verses 8 and 9 are God's invitation to the wise, the moral, the religious, those of us who have cleaned up our acts, where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We religious people think we know a lot. We pretend to have God all figured out. We have a tendency to put God in a box. Like Job's friends, we assume to have the answers to people's problems and know the reasons for their suffering. We oftentimes struggle with God's pardoning grace for sinners. They don't deserve it. Well, that's absolutely right. They don't deserve it. Which illumines the whole meaning of grace. You and I, in Christ, at one time accepted the Lord's invitation to respond to the offer of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ and Along the way, sometimes we have rewritten the invitation, filling in various requirements and duties and obligations that somehow keep us right with God rather than looking to Christ alone. I believe with this invitation, God puts the wise in their place, testing them. Are we willing to put away our self-righteousness, our judgmentalism, to receive the grace that we need and gladly see the unrighteous respond to the free offer of salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. The Lord invites the wicked and the wise, the religious and the irreligious, the moral and the amoral. It's the same invitation. And it requires a response The Lord offers confirmation to his invitation to make his promise legit when he says in verses 10 through 11 that just as the rain and the snow fall to the ground and water the earth and brings up grain and fruit for us to eat and enjoy, so the Lord's word goes forth from his mouth and will not return empty. It will accomplish God's purpose for it, to bring sinners to repentance. And then verses 12 and 13 offer this remarkable vision of a restored creation. You see, just as we fallen image bearers of God need redemption, so the creation cries out for relief and deliverance from the curse that we brought upon it. So the image here is of the redeemed going out with joy and peace, the shalom, the way things ought to be. The mountains and the hills and the trees sing loud choruses of praise to God. The new heavens and the new earth will have no thorns, no thistles, far as the curse is found. And all this will serve to make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign to the greatness of his grace and glory. I believe that these final two messages in Isaiah 55 are an invitation to God's people. First, the invitation to trust in his word to believe in its power to bring sinners to repentance, for God's word to accomplish his purpose for it. We dare not trust in our own wisdom or presume to reinterpret Scripture to fit the times. 
but remain committed to advancing God's kingdom purposes, to seeing him grow as church through the faithful and clear teaching of Scripture. One of the most edifying themes and responses from the congregational survey last fall was over and over again this people indicating their hunger for God's word and their desire for faithful biblical preaching. Do not lose that hunger. This, today, we, our leadership offers you a strategic plan that we expect to review this afternoon in our meeting. And plans are good, and we need them. We have some big goals that we do hope to accomplish. But it amounts to nothing if we would dare stray from God's Word. I believe there's a second invitation here at the end of our text, and that is to make a name for the Lord. Westminster Presbyterian Church does not exist to make much of ourselves but to make much of the Lord our God. Every believer is called not to boast in ourselves, but to boast in the Lord. Not that our names might be remembered on earth, but make the name of Jesus Christ magnified on earth as it is in heaven. We embrace the biblical vision to spread the knowledge of the Lord Almighty over the earth as the waters cover the sea. The Lord invites the destitute, the disillusioned, the wicked and the wise, all manner of people to come to himself for life and to join in the great and awesome task of making a name for the Lord. But I believe that this is more than an invitation. All the verbs I've been working with are imperatives. They're commands. This is a summons. At the age of 19, when I was home from college, between my freshman and sophomore years, I was summoned to jury duty at a court in Houston. And there, for a couple of days' deliberation, we convicted a drug dealer who was caught with several million dollars worth of cocaine. You can ignore an invitation and get away with it, maybe some mild social consequences, offering awkward excuses to friends and family. You ignore a court summons, and you face serious consequences. The Lord's invitation is a summons that requires your response, lest you face serious, eternal consequences. I urge you to submit your RSVP to respond to the Lord's invitation, to seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Listen to him. Come to the waters and find life in the true giver of life who welcomes weary souls and who said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest eternal rest, everlasting satisfaction. Let us pray. Our gracious and generous God and Father, we thank you for inviting us, for welcoming us, for giving us credit 
through the work of Jesus Christ that we may come and feast at your table. Bless us and edify us and lead us in ways to honor and glorify you through our life and witness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.